Hello, Summit Church. To those of you gathered all across the triangle at all of our various campuses, want to welcome you this weekend. We are on our third week of our Homewrecker series. If you have a Bible, we are going to be in the book of 1 John this weekend, so you can begin to find that. 1 John is one of the later books in the New Testament. You can go ahead and open it there. We spent our first two weeks, uh, the whole, by the way, let me back up. The whole idea of Homewreckers is we're looking at some of the things that corrode our relationships and destroy our homes, as outlined by uh, the Bible. And uh, the first two weeks, we did an unusual thing, and that is we looked at what God's Word had to say about the workplace and how we ought to think about the workplace, because a lot of the stress we bring into our homes comes from the workplace. But now we're going to turn our attention to focus on what I believe might be this week, we're going to discuss what maybe the top homewrecker in American homes is. It might be a little surprising for you because you probably wouldn't pick this one out, but I've read enough recently that convinces me of this. Um, you ready? Fear. Fear is the home record that we are going to discuss this weekend. Throughout the Bible, fear is often what keeps people from being able to enter into some state of blessing that God intends for them. Numbers chapter 13, for example, God puts the promised land out there before the children of Israel. And uh, it says that the reason they won't go into it is because they are afraid that the spies come back and say, oh, you, got, you don't believe this. I mean, the people there are like giants, and in their eyes, we're like grasshoppers, and that never works out well for the grasshopper. You know, we get crushed, we get stepped on, uh, grasshoppers get used as bait. Anybody do that when they were a kid? You know, you, you get the grasshopper, anybody? Come on now. You get the grasshopper, and you, you put a hook on them, and that's, that's your bait. It just doesn't work out well for the grasshopper, and they were afraid. And because they were afraid, they missed out. That generation missed out on that promised land blessing that God had for it. Matthew chapter 14, Peter won't walk on the water because he looks around the storm and he is afraid. He's afraid. It's not like God doesn't have the power to hold him up, but he, he, he doesn't experience that in its fullness because he's afraid looking at the storm. In many ways, the original sin of Adam and Eve grew out of, out of fear. Play, Satan played on this idea in their hearts that they were missing out on what, what, what really was good, and, and, and he made them afraid that they were missing out on the best, and that's how he tempted them. You just go through and you think about it. You'll find example after example in the Bible. Israel makes the golden calf because they're afraid that God has abandoned them. Saul disobeys God because he is afraid of the people. Luke 19, Jesus said that the reason that many people won't ever really follow him, really give themselves away, is they're afraid. They're afraid that if they take their hands off their life and they lose control, they're afraid that, that life's going to be bad. It's going to turn out miserably for them. They're, they don't trust God to take what he has committed to them. Fear. The Israelites. The Israelites won't defeat Goliath because they're afraid. And we know that God had the power to do that, but, but most of the Israelites didn't experience that. It took David to do that because they sat on the sidelines in fear. It is fear that keeps you from experiencing what God wants you to experience. So in light of that, do you know what the most often given command in the Bible is? I mean, you probably should. <laughs> if, you, if you don't get it now from that introduction, then I don't know what, 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 what help I could give you. But if I asked you that question, what's the most often repeated command in the Bible, and I hadn't given you that introduction, you probably would come up with a different answer, right? You say, oh, most often given command, like be holy, or, or uh, don't have sex, or... Um, uh, give money to the church, or you know, read God's word, and those are all you know in their place. You're going to find different commands, but the most often repeated command is "fear not." Fear not. 366 times in the Bible, it says that command: "Fear not." That's one for every day of the year and leap year. God knew we would invent leap year at some point, so He went ahead and threw that one in there too. Every day of the year, you got a new "fear not" command that you can can apply. So, in light of all that, it probably shouldn't have surprised me that Christian counselors identify fear as one of the top home wreckers in our relationships. It shouldn't have surprised you, but it did. Um, what keeps you out of God's promised land? Whatever that promised land is that we're talking about um, is usually fear. Fear keeps you out of the promised land of a good marriage. If you're single, then fear keeps you out of uh, the land of contented singleness. Uh, fear not is, 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 is the command that's given to you to be able to add stability to your life. Now, fear not is, is not a command that you can, right? That's not the kind of thing you can just command. If you're terrified, and I just come up to you and I'm like, don't be afraid. I'm going to show you why you shouldn't be afraid. Right? You just can't command that. It's got to come with some kind of assurance. 
Uh, recently, I was in SeaWorld with um, one of my daughters. And, you know, we're, have you been there where you walk through that, like, aquarium where you got all the great white sharks that are swimming around you and you just got this little piece of glass over you and you're walking right through it and you know about halfway through that I start thinking what happens if this, this thing's kind of old if it just you know cracks and all of a sudden all the water comes in here and then the sharks and then we're swimming with the sharks I, I can tell that I wasn't the first person to ever ask that question because they had a little sign right there that said don't be afraid don't be afraid of the sharks because this glass that this tube is built out of is, uh, could hold like, I think it said 300 elephants on top of it, so it's not going to, to break and you're not going to get eaten by sharks. Their, their command to me to fear not was not simply an arbitrary admonition that I should, you know, buck up. It was, it was something given with a promise, given with a promise. Well, when God tells us not to fear, when he says fear not, it's because he is giving that with an implicit promise in it. And that promise is made explicit in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. 1 John 4, 18, listen. There is no fear in love. Now, when I first read that verse years ago, it was, what? I feel like there's all kinds of, I feel like when you're in love, you actually have more fear than you did when you weren't in love. Right? Because, right, because if, if you're in love, then the person may not love you back. They could leave you. What do you mean there's no fear in love? That's a good question. We'll, we'll get to that. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. God's perfect love, and only God's perfect love, can drive out fear. And I'm going to try to show you this weekend why God's love is perfect and why that alone drives out fear. Why it's the only thing that can drive out fear. There's two things that are going to make this talk tonight or th this weekend unusual. The first is that um, I'm going to teach you a few truths from this verse. And then I'm going to spend the majority of our time applying it specifically to marriage and singleness. The reason that's a little unusual is you know that my, my, my typical way of going about things is I just like to spend most of our time in the text of Scripture. I feel much more confident when I'm doing that because I feel like I'm giving you less of my opinions and more of the Word of God. But, but what we're going to do this weekend is I'm going to take some truths in this and then spend a lot of time applying it to um, our relationships or when we're not in a relationship. The second reason this is a very unusual time this weekend is because I'm going to have my wife help me do this. Um, when I was sharing with her my, uh, what was going on in this series, and I told her about this subject of fear that I really felt led of God to talk about, she said, oh, you got to make sure that you say this and this and this and this and this to women. She said, because women deal with these kind of fears like all their lives. And finally, after hearing her talk long enough, I was like, why don't you say those things to the women? And she said, no. And I said, why not? And she said, because I'm afraid to get up and talk in front of people. <laughs> so then I went over all the different verses that I was going to share about fear, but that totally didn't convince her. So then I had to whip out Ephesians 5 about me being the authority in the home and her need to submit. And uh, so um, for whatever it took, she's going to be doing that this weekend. Um, and so she'll be coming up here in just a little bit to help me uh, get through this because she said that from the time that a girl's in high school, she starts asking a lot of these troubling questions. Um, girls start asking things like, what if I never get married? Now, of course, guys, you know, ask that too, but, but we usually ask it differently. And for whatever reason, whether it's just a myth or not, guys usually don't feel as powerless as most girls do about that question. Um, you know, that may just be something we make up, but we feel like I can actually change the outcome there, and a lot of girls don't feel like that. What if I don't get married and I can't find a real job? That, that, that's a question that, that, a fear that a lot, of, a lot of them have. Some girls, she said, fear that if they do get married, they'll lose their identity. Hey, I get married, and then I, all of a sudden I just become a housewife. All my skills get, like, swallowed up, and all I do is change diapers all day. Married women fear, um, married women fear their husband losing their job, uh, not being able to provide for the family. They're like, well, if he doesn't take care of us, what if, he, what if he's not a good worker? What if, he's, what if he's not a spiritual leader? What if he leaves me? She said they ask questions like, what if I get unattractive as I get older? What if I gain weight? What if I have wrinkles? You know, the way I describe it to you guys like this so you can understand, guys, and I think most of you will track with this, whenever I open up my online bank account, no matter how much money I, I, I think I have in there, no matter how much, I always feel just a little twinge of anxiety as that page is coming up. Anybody else do this? Because I always just feel like, what if I like made a calculation mistake? What if, you know, I mailed some checks to my grandmother five years ago for Christmas and she just decided to cash them all at once? Or, or what if, uh, what if... Uh, 
You know, what if the IRS suddenly put a levy on my thing because they found out some back taxes I haven't paid? I mean, none of these things are true, but I'm just like, I, I, there's a thousand different things that could go wrong. What if somebody stole my identity? Uh, my wife has a credit card. What if she just wreaked havoc on this account, you know, in the last six hours? I, I, I just, you feel that twinge of anxiety. Um, anybody else like that? I feel like you guys are giving me blank stares. I know people at our other campuses identify with this. Um, I feel a twinge of anxiety because I feel like that's, in some ways, that's security. Well, my wife has helped me to see that girls, many girls, not all girls, I'm not trying to overgeneralize here, but many girls feel that way when they stand in front of a mirror. A full-length mirror, when a girl stands in front of a full-length mirror, she has a twinge of anxiety because no matter how perfect she is, she could be perfect. And when she stands there, all she sees are the flaws. Now, guys, you don't track with that, right? Because when I, when I stand in front of a full-length mirror, I could, be carrying, I could be carrying 40 extra pounds in the front and 40 extra pounds in the back. And when I stand in front of a full-length mirror, I see Atlas. That's what I see. And I'm like, anytime I want to, I can bring that Greek God back out. I just got to, you know, it, it's right there. Russell Crowe again. What's he doing in the house? You know, I, that's what I think when I see there. But girls, they don't see it. They're, 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 there's this fear of like, what if, what if I get unattractive? What if, what, I fear aging. Many women fear, what if I don't have kids? What if I do have kids? <laughs> what if I have to drive a minivan? You know, I mean, um, what if I can't find friends after I get married? What if my kids don't have friends? What if my kids turn out to be socially inept or socially awkward? What if I lose a child, either literally or figuratively? Well, believe it or not, 1 John 4.18 was, was for you. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to help you define fear for a few minutes. That's what we'll do. And then I'm going to show you two ways that we fear in marriage. And on the second of those ways is when my wife is going to, is going to help me out. Okay, here you go. If you take notes, here's a good thing to write down. We fear something when we think it can really damage us. That's what 1 John is alluding to. We fear something when we think it can really damage us. I went back this week and looked again at the list of officially identified phobias because that always makes me laugh. Um, all the officially identified psychological disorders. Um, you've got standard ones like arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Ophidiophobia, the fear of snakes. Necrophobia, the fear of death. But then you've got more non-traditional fears like olfactophobia, which is the fear of foul smells. Um, the ritophobia, the fear of getting wrinkled. Octophobia, the fear of the number eight. Dorophobia, which is the fear of animal fur. No, not fear of that cartoon Hispanic girl. Um, although I will freely admit that I have wigglesophobia and doodlebopophobia because those people freak me out. Um, and I think my son this week, my only son, my you know, one-and-a-half-year-old, learned a new fear. Um, I came home, and my three daughters, eight, five, and three years old, had a digital camera picture. Uh, they told me this very like, heart-wrenching story, heart-wrenching to them. She's like, Adam, that's my son, came upstairs. We were working on a puzzle, and he tore that puzzle up. So we punished him, and they dressed him up like a princess. That was his punishment. And they had a picture of it. And so I'm like, they just implanted to him fear of being dressed up like a princess. Is that one of these phobias right here? Because it needs to be. Um, one of our pastors has tocophobia, which is the fear of pregnant women, uh, which I was like, this is a bad place to work because I feel like at any given point, a third of our women here are pregnant. Um, his wife has given birth to two kids. I was like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, another of our pastors has cholrophobia, the fear of clowns. <laughs> Why you'd be afraid of a grown man wearing malfitting clothes, garish makeup, and a freaky wig, I, I can't understand that, but you know, some people are afraid of that. Then there's uh, onphalophobia, the fear of belly buttons. Then there's arachibudirophobia, which is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. That's a good one. And then there's one of my favorites, frigophobia. Frigophobia. That's the fear of getting cold. Um, all right, we are afraid of these things, whether we're serious or whether we're, we're joking like a lot of these. Um, we fear something when we think it, it can hurt us. And so what you try to do is you try to control your environment so that you avoid these things. Which leads me to the second thing I was going to point out here, and that is that fear is usually a type of worship. Fear is usually a type of worship. Remember I've explained to you that, the, that, that worship comes from a Hebrew word that literally means weight. You worship something whenever you give something weight. Well, see, when you worship something, you give it such weight that you couldn't imagine life without that thing. And, and you're thinking, like, I've got to have this for happiness. I've got to have this for security. And so you fear 
the loss of that thing. That's why, by the way, the Bible so repeatedly tells you to fear God. Because God really is the one, the only one, Scripture says, that holds the key to our, our joy, our security, and our well-being. You go to Proverbs 14, chapter 26. Or don't go there, just listen and I'll, I'll read it to you. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. You see, there's a kind of fear that actually gives you life. It's when you realize that God alone is all you really need to depend on for life and happiness. And see, if, if, if that's what you believe, that God alone is what you need to depend on for life and happiness, and you are, are, are assured in the gospel that he has nothing but perfect love for you, that gives you a sense of confidence to face the rest of life. It becomes a fountain of life in your marriage, in your job. Because it gives you confidence, you are confident in his perfect love and his everlasting strength, and that drives out all the other fears. That's why the fear of God, you need to fear God or fear everything else. But if you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. Because what happens is you, is you are assured of his love for you. And you know how important and how controlling and how weighty that is. You know that it's perfect, which we're going to get to again. So let me be clear, though. The goal of this sermon is not that you don't fear at all. The goal of the sermon is that you fear God. Because when God is in the right place, you won't be dominated by other fears. You'll find they just disappear. Three, third thing I want to point out about fear from this verse here. And that is that fear comes from a sense of punishment. Fear comes from a sense of punishment. You see, fear is a very natural emotion. Fear is when you feel like something can damage you, that you're in danger, you feel exposed. And that comes from a sense of punishment, get this, that you and I have carried since the Garden of Eden. The very first parents, our very first parents, Adam and Eve, had fear after they had sinned because they felt naked. And when they felt naked, they felt exposed, because that's how normal people feel when they are naked publicly. That's why it's a very frightening thing if you, if you have that recurring dream. Anybody have this where you show up somewhere naked? Anybody? Admit it. Put your hands up everywhere. Testify. You have, okay, I have the dream. I show up at UNC Chapel Hill to speak to like 20,000 students, and I have on my tidy whities I kid you not. That is a recurring dream. I don't know why, but I, it's not a pleasant dream. I don't wake up and be like, oh, you wouldn't believe the dream I had last night. It was awesome. No, it's like, oh. It's just a terror, because that, that's fear, right? That's what they felt, is they felt fear. They felt exposed. When you are afraid, you know you want to run from something. But see, the issue now is we don't really know what to run to. We, we are under the punishment of God. You see, before Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked, but it didn't bother them. I've explained this to you, because they were clothed in the love and the acceptance of God. And because they were clothed in the love and the acceptance of God, they had no fear about their nakedness, but having been stripped of the love and the presence of God, now they felt exposed. So they know, and we know, that we need to run from something, but we don't know exactly what to run to. Three, three, three important things about fear. Now, let me give you two ways that fear affects our marriage. For those of us that are married, or if we're not, that affects our, um, just our life romantically, or whether we're single, or whether we're, we're planning to ever get in a relationship. Number one, we think our spouse holds the key to our joy, our security, and our significance. So we fear them letting us down. Or if we're single and that future spouse holds the key for our joy, security, and significance, we fear never getting married. Our spouse holds something we think is essential for life. Respect, love, security. And we depend on them for that. And so the idea that they may not deliver for us frightens us. It causes anxiety. Most of us entered marriage that way, thinking that this person would complete us. It, it, it's like kind of a, you know, a symbol for our generation, at least my generation, the Jerry Maguire movie where Renee Zellweger looks at Tom Cruise and says, you remember it, you complete me. Or does he say that to her? I don't remember. It was a dumb movie. But you complete me. And we're like, oh, if one of them completes the other one, whichever one said it. They complete, I want somebody to complete me. I want somebody to complete me, and we think, oh, how sweet that is, somebody to complete me, and that's why I get married. I got to such high expectations. I got to have somebody to complete me. Now, I've explained to you before that if you start listening for this, this is like the text of almost all the, the popular romantic songs. There's basically one romantic song, and you just, they rewrite it in, using different words. Um, Celine Dion, no, I don't listen to her, but I looked this up on the internet. Celine Dion, you were my strength when I was weak. You were my voice when I couldn't speak. 
You were my eyes when I couldn't see. You saw the best there was in me. Lifted me up when I couldn't reach. You gave me faith because you believed. I'm everything I am because you love me. Or here's a good one. I do listen to this guy. Barry White. Oh, yeah. You're the first, my last. My everything, the answer to all my dreams, my sun, my moon, my guiding star. That's what you are. I know there's only, only one like you. <laughs> there's no way they could have made two. You're all I'm living for. Your love, I'll keep forevermore. You're the first, my last, my everything. Now, on the, no, I'm not singing that. <laughs> That's some little request down here from the front row. No. Um, on the surface, those things sound real romantic, don't they? <laughs> I want somebody to feel that way about me. I want to be their, their everything. No, you don't want somebody to feel that way about you. Because if that's true, then that person is going to have a death grip on you. They're going to try to control you. Because if you're their everything, then without you, what's the opposite of everything? They're nothing. You're nothing. And I mean, they're nothing. And so they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna put the chokehold on you. The way I've described it to you before in the past is, you know, you got a girl, for example, floating in a sea of loneliness and despair, and, 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 and she's, she's miserable, and she hates singleness, and she doesn't like herself, and she doesn't like her image, and along by floats a six-foot-two, brown-headed, well-built life preserver. What do you do when you're drowning in the ocean and a life preserver comes by? What do you do? You grab it, and you grab a hold of it, and she ends up sucking the life out of him because she's looking for something in him that he was never intended to give her, but she is, he has become her everything. And, and, and if you feel that way about somebody, you're always going to be trying to control them. And so your life starts to be filled with worry and anxiety about whether or not they're actually going to deliver for you. What if I, my husband lets me down? I mean, you know, if you're everything because they love you, then if they disappoint you and love you, feel like nothing. And if you're single, you're like, well, if I don't get married, how could I be happy or feel any worth if I'm not loved by that somebody you know, who's, who's going to be my, my sun, my moon, my guiding star? Who's going to be my voice when I can't speak? Who's going to be my eyes when I can't see? And you'll find, by the way, if you're married, that you start to get angry a lot at your spouse. You start to get angry because they're disappointing you. And, and, and you say things in arguments to them like this. You'll say, why don't you respect me more? Why don't you affirm me more? Why don't you love and take care of me the way that my girlfriend's husband takes care of her? And then you start to resort to manipulative behaviors, behaviors. You blow up at them. You get angry. You make statements like, I hate you. See, whenever this statement comes out, I hate you, that is a sign of deep disappointment. Yes, they might be wrong in what they are doing, but the feeling of hate has as much to do with your idolatry as it does their failure. That's where that hate comes from. Disappointment is one thing. Hatred is because they have deeply wounded you on the soul level. Because they were your everything. You turned them into a god. Some of you are, are more passive aggressive. And so you'll do this by withholding affection, withholding sex, crying, stonewalling. Or how about this one? Constant nitpicking. They, 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 whatever they do, they, they, this is never good enough. You're just always picking out. Why? Because you need them to be perfect. You need them to be perfect. So no matter what they're doing, it's, it's never enough. You, you ever heard of that book, The Five Love Languages? Five Love Languages, which is basically the idea, a lot of people who are married read this book, it's the idea that, that married people, you have to learn how to speak the language, the love language of the person that you're married to, because some people feel love through touch, some people feel love through words of affirmation, some people feel love through quality time. So I asked a friend of mine one time, I was like, well, what's your wife's love language? He said, whichever one I'm not doing at the moment, that is her love language. <laughs> it's just constant nitpicking. I, can, you, you, I need you to be perfect. Why do you need your spouse to be perfect? The reason you're always not satisfied is because you are looking to them to do on a soul level something they're just not designed to do. Number one reason marriages go wrong, number one reason is you look for a security and a love in your spouse that you really ought to find in God. And by the way, guys, this is not just a female issue, just in case you're thinking this. It's, I, I, but one of our pastors wrote an article this week, secular article, was talking about the fact that Western culture, men in Western culture, it's unlike any other culture in the world and any other culture in history in that in Western culture, men, are, men, their wives are everything for them. In other cultures, there's these like natural kind of networks where men have friends. But in our culture, most men don't have friends. I, I read something this week. 81%, 81% of pastors admit they don't really have a real friend. 81, 
percent. And we're always the guys up here talking about community. And I know that the reason for that is because we're part of this culture. And so I know if it's that way for, for most pastors, it's that way for most of you guys out here too. You don't have a real friend. And so what that means is that your wife is your only companion. Your wife is your only source of human affirmation. Brad Hambrick, who is our pastoral expert here at the Summit Church, says, quote, there are as many needy, codependent men as women. You show your codependency in different ways, but it's just as true. Now, what's the answer for that? Answer for that's the perfect love of God. We're going to come back to that, but, but that's the first kind of fear, you see. The second kind of fear that ends up coming into our marriage is the sense that, that we're unable to maintain control of something that matters to us. So write this down, number two, we feel powerless to control the future. We feel powerless to control the future. For many, especially women, not only women, but especially many women, what you most love and what you most depend on is in your homes. That's your security, it's your identity, because many of you, your, your, your greatest identity, uh, identity, and properly so, is the mother of your kids. It's for your financial security. And you start to realize at some point that the things that you love the most, you actually have very little control over. And so that list of questions I gave you, what if I never get married? What if my husband loses his job? What if he's a bad dad? What if he leaves me? What if I get unattractive as I get older? What if I lose a child? And what that leads you to is worry, Sometimes that, that goes, you go into depression, like this constant source of sadness, panic attacks, overprotectiveness with your kids, jealousy over what's going on with your husband. This is a sense of constant dissatisfaction. This is the point where I feel like I've probably already said too much. And so I'm going to ask my anointed, eloquent wife to come up here on our stage, and I'm going to ask her to just let you women have it, Okay. So, um, Veronica, if you'll come up, and you'll just lower the boom. It is really ironic that I'm up here to talk to y'all about being afraid because I'm terrified. So if that's not some rich irony, I don't know what is. Um, I have spent many, many hours the last couple of weeks thinking about this and um, being scared of this moment. Scared you wouldn't like me. Scared you would be bored. Scared you wouldn't think I was intelligent. Scared you wouldn't like my outfit, scared you wouldn't like my hair, scared you wouldn't, on and on and on. Um, I don't really know what I was afraid of, though, because have you seen how JD dresses? Someone does not know he's getting close to 40. And if you see him shopping unsupervised in the mall, please call me immediately. <laughs> anyway, like JD said, um, fear really is something that can take over every aspect of, of your life and dominate it if you let it. Um, both the fear of things you can't control and the, pe the fear of people letting us down. So I'm going to talk about um, that first one first and then the second one. Um, first of all, women, I have to start with the truth that I've recently been uh, very convicted about. I read over the last couple of months a book called Overcoming Fear, Worry, and Anxiety by Elise Fitzpatrick. And she, I, the point, one of the points she made um, is simple, so get ready. Um, and that's that worry is a sin. Every time you do it, over whatever it is, big or small, you're sinning against God. And we tend to brush it off and let it go, but you can't really do that. Um, when God says in the Bible, most of you have probably heard that he says that or read it, um, in Philippians, do not be anxious, in Matthew, do not worry, in Isaiah, do not be afraid, it wasn't just something that was a rhetorical flourish that he said, because he didn't know what else to say in that awkward moment. He said it because he knows our weakness and he knows how we're made. And he knows that not just women, men too, tend to operate in our lives um, as if we have the responsibility and the power to control our lives, and we don't. And that is the source of true, deep anxiety. Do you know what the main problem with it is in, try, in trying to run our lives and not being able to? It's because God's power, which is available to us, we know that, it is not available to us when we start dreaming up these imaginary settings and these imaginary difficulties and situations that have not ever actually come to be. See, women definitely have a tendency, uh, more than men, for sure, um, to let our imaginations run away with us. I kid you not, I have been in tears 
over situations that I have created entirely in my mind. Something like, I will be driving down the road with my four kids in the back and like, you know, narrowly avoid like sort of a, an accident or something. So then in my mind, we have the accident. What would have happened if we had the accident? Oh my gosh, what if all of my children died and I survived? I would not ever be able to make it. I'm sure of it. I'm sure I would not be able to withstand that sort of situation. So I'm in tears. The kids are back there listening to like the Veggie Tales, and I'm like bawling in the front seat. I mean, it's kind of insane, but I, I know my friends do this. So I mean, women don't, you know, you know what I'm talking about. The reason it seems, though, that it is a sure thing, I mean, I feel positive when I think about it like that, that I would never be able to continue on if something like that were to happen, is because, is because as I just said, we are, it is only when we are actually called to go through the difficult times that God's presence can provide what we need to overcome it. In Matthew 6, 34, um, when God says, do not worry about tomorrow because basically he says tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. That was always like really distressing to me. Like, is that, come on, Jesus, is that like comforting? I'm confused. What are you trying to say? Um, but Jesus has taught me, Jesus, JD, JD has taught me what, he, what it meant. In Lamentations, when, um, when it says that the Lord's mercies are new every morning, what he's saying is that when you come to that trial, when you come to that difficulty, he will provide for you then, not before, he will provide for you then what you need to withstand anything. And truthfully, because of our imaginations and how we are, we may never need that grace. Corey Ten Boom tells a story, she's a great missionary, tells a story of when she was 10 years old and because of a tragedy outside of her family, began to realize that um, the people she knew and loved could also die and that really even her father, her beloved father could die. And so she was crying about it and talking to her father about it and very upset. And he said, Corey, when we go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket for the train? And she thought about it and she said, um, well, just before we get on the, on the train. And he said, that's right. And our wise father in heaven knows um, when we are going to need the things too. Do not run ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength that you need just in time. I don't want to be outdone by J.D. with the Lewis and Spurgeon quotes, and I did look for quotes that applied by their wives, but to no avail. So here's a great one from Spurgeon on this. Many of God's people are constantly under apprehensions of calamities which will never occur to them, and they suffer far more in merely dreading them than they would have to if to endure if they actually came upon them. In their imagination, there are rivers in their way, and they are anxious to know how they shall wade through them or swim across them. There are no such rivers in existence, but they are agitated and distressed about them all the same. They stab themselves with imaginary daggers, they starve themselves in imaginary famines, and even bury themselves in imaginary graves. Women, you have got to rein your imaginations in first. And second, when you are actually called to endure a great trial, when, not before, realize this one truth that will save you. God's presence, his very actual spirit, will be with you through it and even make it to turn out for your good. Romans 8:28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. When we are afraid of things that we think would be too much for us to bear, to bear, something that we are sure would just kill us. It is because we've put our hope in something that was never meant to withstand the weight of, your, of that hope. My friend said it this way, only God can bear the weight of your soul. Every circumstance of our lives is designed to lead us into a greater and deeper and better intimacy with him to prepare us for eternity. And even the worst ones, even the very worst ones. And when you get just a taste of that presence of God, the smallest taste, you are able to see how you can go forward without fear. Which leads me to that second point um, that Jay's been talking about. We call it the fear of man, because that's what the Bible calls it in a few places. Y'all, this is where I live. Oh, man, this is kind of embarrassing, actually, but I feel like it's like been the title of my life sometimes. I like to call it people-pleasing, but that is just a euphemism, kind of like I like to call my kids high-spirited. It's just a euphemism. Um... When I first came back to God, uh, my first year of college, um, my church asked me to sort of tell him my story. And so I did. And after I did, after I finished telling him about how what had finally brought me to my knees and back to God was realizing that I didn't have to 
please everyone around me and try to like make them like me and, and be this person for them or, and all this stuff um, that God already knew who I was. He knew how bad I was, exactly how bad I was, and he approved of me because of Christ, no matter what. And so it was this like the most freeing, there's no words for it, the most freeing experience of my entire life. And I found it easier. I felt like I was flying through my life, you know, walking on air. I felt like I could, I, I could, I had several roommates. So I was in a suite, I, people that I couldn't stand before. I found it easy to love them. It was, I mean, let me tell you, it was like powerful, okay? I was like telling the word. This man comes up to me afterwards, this great elder in my church, very revered for a long walk with God. And he said, thank you for sharing. He was very encouraged. And he said, but I want to tell you something. I just want to caution you after years with the Lord, one thing. I said, okay. So he says, don't think that just because you've won this victory this one time that you can put it behind you forever. The fear of man will probably pursue you and you will probably have to fight it again. Well, thanks, dude. You're like seriously killing my buzz, but okay. Um, I, I really didn't believe him. I remember thinking, he's wrong. After I've tasted this, this freedom in Christ, I will never go back to trying to please man again. Well, Two years later, I found myself with an exercise eating disorder, stemming really all from this desperate need to please the people around me and make them like me and think that I was pretty or whatever it was. So won that battle again. Thank you, Jesus. Three years later, I found myself miserably married to JD. Miserable. Probably more miserable than I've ever been before, and it really was coming the Lord helped me see. The turning point was when I began to see that it was this fear of man. Because no matter what J.D. did or didn't do, if I ever felt like he was disappointed in any way in me, then I was crushed. Can, can go on. So, switch my little notes here. Don't want to lose my place. So when I began to see that, um, that was when things began to change for us. Um, I... Uh, also complicating things in that, though, I will tell you this, was that I was afraid to even ask for help or tell people because I thought, what will they think of me if they find out we're not, like, skipping through meadows together hand in hand? So that also complicated. It was still that fear of man. Um, there's this quote that I want to share with you before I go, um, and it's by Angela Thomas, and she says, here's one thing I can say with great confidence. The man that you love is just a man. He may be studly and funny and surprising and strong, but he will never, not in a million years, not if he goes to therapy twice a week and keeps every promise ever written, be enough to fill your soul. He will never make you whole. He wasn't made to be enough. He couldn't even if he tried. He is just a man, and he can only give and love as a man. He was not designed to fill the depth of a woman's longings, anticipate every need, and jump through every hoop. He can't. Those deep places inside you were made for God. Thank you, sweetheart. I um, told you we were leading up to 1 John 4.18, and so I want you to look there because I wanted to show you that the two things that we fear most in marriage, or the lack of marriage, are the things that the gospel addresses. Here's the gospel answer, 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, not our love for one another, because there's plenty of fear in that. There's no fear in God's love, but perfect love, that's the only perfect love, cast out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear has to do with punishment. Our fear goes back to this sense, you see, of being vulnerable. Right? We have this sense of nakedness, this sense of, of exposure. And so, watch, when somebody rejects me, the reason that hurts so badly is because it reminds me of that sense of rejection that I sense all the time because my soul is naked before God. And, and, and it's punishment. It's this sense of being rejected before God that causes that to be so, so devastating because what, what happens is, is that other person's approval of me for a while is like a covering. It's like, well, they approve of me, so I don't feel naked. And then all of a sudden, when they don't approve of me perfectly, guess what? That's when all of a sudden that's stripped away and I start to feel naked again. When things in my life start going not according to plan, I start to feel, here's what happens. You start to feel alone. You start to feel abandoned. You start to feel like nobody's, my life is spinning out of control. And things aren't going to work out right. My, my, I'm being forsaken. That's that feeling that you have. 
my life is, is hard. You know that you can go through pain. If you know that there is a good and loving person standing beside you that is directing what's happening. I mean, if you had to go through a very painful surgery, if you know that you're in the hands of the best surgeon there is in the world, it's, it may still it will be painful, but you're, you're confident in the midst of that. You're not in despair. The reason we feel, the reason that we get so worried about these things that are there is because we have the sense of punishment. We have a sense that we've been abandoned and that we've been forsaken. Perfect love, you see, cast out fear. God's love is perfect for us in at least four ways. You ought to jot these down and think about them. Maybe discuss them in your small groups throughout the week. Number one, God's love is perfect in its intensity toward us. God could not love us more than he did when he gave Christ to absorb the wrath of God for our sin. God gave us love beyond anything that anybody had ever known. It's certainly nothing that Celine Dion or Barry White's ever sung about. It's God's intense love for us. It was, it was perfect in its intensity. Number two, it was perfect in its security because Christ removed any threat of God ever taking away his love for me. Everything that God could have held against me, everything that could separate me from God's love, Jesus Christ absorbed on the cross. God's love, number three, is perfect in its ability to satisfy us. You were created for eternal love. You were created for the love of God. Now, I've explained this to you before, but those arms that you were seeking in marriage, those were his arms. You didn't know it. That security you were looking for, that significance you were looking for, that was found in knowing God. Number four, God's love is perfect in its oversight of all things in our lives. Because we know that the God who controls all the universe loves us, will never leave us, and is controlling every molecule in the universe according to his good plan. There is nothing that could be greater or more complete than the love of God for you. There's no way that God's love could be any stronger. There's no way it could be any more secure. There's no way it could be any more satisfying or any more at work in our lives. And if you ever believe that, that would drive out fear. How could it not drive out fear? I have the greatest gift of the universe. And I know that God is directing all things according to his love. With God's perfect love, what else is there to be afraid of? That's why 1 John 4, if you look back up a few verses, verse 4, John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's nobody can damage you. There's no, nothing that could happen that God was like, oh, I didn't know about that. What's going to happen there? Oh, wait. No, of course not. There's nobody that can interrupt the outworking of God's perfect plan for you. All things, as my wife mentioned, Romans 8, 28, are working together for good to those who love God. I love this verse. This is what God said to the children of Israel before they, they, when they wouldn't go into the promised land because they were scared. Because um, you know, they're like, oh, the people are like giants. And the other thing that we know about the Canaanites is that they were all into witchcraft. They're big time into spells. And, you know, it was demonically powered, so a lot of it worked. And the people were like, oh, I can't believe Lord Voldemort lives there. And you know, they got stronger curses than our curses. And our little, you know, guy with there's little stick and they're firing the green things and he's going to blow us up. And so Numbers 23, 23, there is no sorcery that can succeed against Jacob. So what God says to him, he's like, oh yeah, they got Lord Voldemort. All you got to do is quote that verse and he'll roll over dead. There's no sorcery. There's no, no power that can interrupt God's plan. Psalm 56, 11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Why? Because what can man actually do to me? What can man actually do to me? Do you trust that God is all-powerful and that he's right now perfectly directing all things in your life and that nothing is outside of his loving control? If so, you'll stop being dominated by fear because when you really fear God, you can stop fearing everything else. Again, let me make sure you understand that. When I say fear, I mean when you recognize that God's love is so weighty and God is so significant and he is really the one that you only need to depend on. He's all that you need. When you really put God in the right place, and then you are assured that there is no condemnation for you in Christ, then at that point, that is when fear evaporates. That's why I told you, listen, that the goal of this message is not that you don't fear. The goal of this message is that you fear the right thing. Right? I mean, my kids are a good example. They fear all the wrong things and don't fear the right things. They're afraid of the closet monster, but they're not afraid to play in traffic. I'm like, there is no closet monster, but stay out of the road. They're, they're, they're afraid of flies, but not afraid of snakes. I'm telling you, a green mamba could slither through our yard, and they go try to pick it up. But then a little fly lands, I'm like, ah! You know, I'm like, no, be afraid of the right things. Some of you fear all the wrong things. You fear singleness. You fear marriage. You feel uh, that litany of things that I, I, I listed. You fear men. You fear women. You fear things. No. 
It's like one of our pastors told me. He said, you know, he said, when I was in college is when God brought me to himself. He says, one of the things that God used is I started to think about the fact, what if I died single? He said, I'd be okay. What if I died poor? I'd be okay. What if I died without Jesus? I would not be okay. He said, and that totally changed everything because when Jesus came into the right place and all the rest of it began to fall into line. You see, fear is a reality. It's given to you as a gift because you have a sense that you need to run away from something. But you need to know what to run to. You need to run to the perfect love of God. You've got a sense of punishment. That's right. That's God gave you that. But Christ has absorbed that punishment. And so there's nothing to fear. There's no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. I am convinced, Paul says, that nothing can separate me from the love of God. How deep, how wide, how long. God is for me. Who can be against me? Let me show you the real beauty of all this, okay? When you find that kind of security, then you can start to be real and authentic again in relationships. You can start to open up yourselves in intimacy. I've explained this to you before, but the human quest is to be known and loved. Known and loved. Because to be known but not loved is rejection. But to be loved while not really known, well, that's sentimentality. You want to be known and loved, but here's the dilemma. When people really get to know you, they find so much in you that's not worthy of love. So you keep yourself at a distance. And you don't want to let them see the real you, but when you've experienced the love of God, because Christ knew you fully and loved you through those things, loved you greater than you could ever be loved, all of a sudden that gives your soul a security so that I can deal with your rejection of me because I have God's approval of me. That's what the gospel is. I've I've explained this before. The gospel is that you are simultaneously more wicked than you probably ever imagined and more loved and accepted by God in Christ than you ever dared hope. At the same time, that's what the gospel is, is that you are more known and more loved at the same time. And when that happens, see, then I can start to open up myself and I can trust. You know why I can trust somebody again? Because even if they let me down, that doesn't shatter my soul because my soul is anchored in God. And I can deal with your approval not being perfect of me. I can deal with my wife letting me down and she can deal with me not letting her down because neither of us have our souls anchored in one another anymore. They're anchored in God. See, I can begin to open up myself again. Write this down. If God's love is perfect, then everybody else's love doesn't need to be. See, that's when you go, "Mm," and you start writing it down, right? If God's love is perfect, then your spouse's doesn't need to be. If God's love is perfect, then life doesn't have to be. See? You're looking for perfection in your spouse. You're looking for perfection in life. You're never going to find it. The only perfect thing is the love of God. So anchor your soul in that. And then you'll say Psalm 56, 11, and God I trust. He is my rock and my refuge. I shall not be afraid because what can man do to me? See? Give you one more verse here. 1 John 1, just to show you how John talks about this so much in 1 John. I love this. If we live in the light, as God is in the light, we can share fellowship with each other. The world, here's what's ironic. The world thinks intimacy occurs in the dark. Right? God says, no, it happens in the light. We tend to use darkness to hide our hurts, our faults, our fears, our failures, and our flaws. But in the light, we bring them all out into the open and and admit who we really are. That's the gospel. The gospel is that you are more wicked than you ever imagined and more loved and accepted by God than you ever dreamed. And so you bring out your flaws. You are known. And because you're secured in the love of God, then I can trust again. I don't have to be obsessed about everything, having control of everything. I don't have to lay the weight of my soul on my wife and say, you're my source of approval, significance, security, and happiness. Why? Because those things are given to me in God. So what I hope you see in this, it's a point I make just about every week without apology, and I'll make it, if you come here to church for the next 50 years, I'll probably have this in, in the next 50 years worth of sermons. There'll always be some kind of version of this point. Fear is a signal fire for unbelief in the gospel. Fear is a signal fire of unbelief in the gospel. Fear means you're running from something. But the greater question is, what are you running to? 
Fear is letting you know that your soul has not been covered in the perfect love of God because perfect love casts out fear and the one who fears has not been perfected in love. He doesn't understand how much God loves him or doesn't understand how valuable that is. Or he doesn't understand that God is lovingly in control of all things and working it all out for his plan. How could you fear if you had the perfect love of God as the confidence and the anchor of your soul? Fear is a signal fire of unbelief in the gospel. So we know what you're running from. What are you running to? Come to the perfect love of God. Why don't you bow your heads, if you will, at all of our campuses? I want you to bow your heads and let me pray for you. Father, there are marriages that are deeply in trouble and they think the problem is the other person. But the problem is their idolatry that's leading them to fear. There are people who are despairing over their singleness or over their bad marriage. And they think that the answer is a spouse or a new spouse God, help them see that the only perfect love there is is the love that is given by you in Christ. Thank you, Father, for this gift that is offered freely to all who will receive it. And God, may those who are in any of our campuses right now who have not yet found or been found by that perfect love, who have never received Jesus as Savior, I pray that they would speak to that person who invited them this weekend. And Before they leave our campuses, they would have discovered and been discovered by Jesus Christ. God, give them the courage to talk to somebody and complete this work that you brought them here for. It's not an accident that they're here, so, so finish it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.